Let's, uh, let's pray, and then we'll talk about where we're going tonight. Heavenly Father, we, we are so grateful that you have not left us in the darkness, but you've come to us in the person of Jesus Christ. We thank you, Lord, for the promise in your word that all around us we see evidence of you. Your word tells us in Psalm 19, the heavens declare your glory. The firmament shows forth your handiwork. Night after night, they pour forth speech about you. So, Lord, help us to be attentive to what you're saying through what you've created. And, Lord, your word tells us also in Romans 1 that your power, your invisible qualities, your magnificent attributes are made plain by what is visible. And therefore, we're without excuse. So, Lord, we know this isn't a mental game. There's a responsibility you've given us. So help us take that responsibility seriously. Be with us tonight, Lord. Tonight, be our teacher. Help us. Help me. Help us all together. Come to the place of utter worship, the one who made us and gave us the ability to think and reason and process and stand in awe and wonder and who it is you are. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, as we said tonight, uh, we're well aware of the fact that we have been very cerebral. We've done, if you think about it, we have done science, we've done mathematics, and we've done philosophy in the last couple months at a fairly high level that sometimes even master's level students do not get. And so you're still with us. God bless you. He who endures to the end shall be saved. Jason and I are well aware of the fact that this is difficult. We know that. Uh, but as I said, we're going to turn a corner. Tonight, we're going to, um, after we present one more argument, almost as a practice argument uh, that really ties together all that we've learned up to this point. After we do that, I want to get your feedback. I want to sort of pull back the microscope using the course adjustment knob, so to speak, and look at the whole discipline of apologetics again and see where we are in relation to the whole. Okay. Uh, you know that the, we've given you an outline. We're going to give it again tonight. And we want to work through it, see what we've done and where we need to go. And I want to hear your feedback on some of the arguments we've made so far, how effective you think they are, the pros and cons of each, and, and where we go from here. Okay, Pastor Jason and I are interested to hear your feedback on some of those questions. But for now, let's start with one final argument under the category of natural theology. One final argument that I think will tie together all that we've learned, and you can sort of talk with me on this. This is really a hybrid of the cosmological and the ontological argument. And those terms are meaningless to you because you're here for the first time. Don't worry about it. We'll just simply process this argument together. Now, remember, an argument is not true or false. An argument is what? Valid or invalid. An argument is not true or false. An argument is valid or invalid. In other words, the premises that form the argument either follow to the conclusion or they don't. If all of the premises actually follow logically to the conclusion, you've got a valid argument. That does not mean it's a true argument. It just means it's valid. In other words, it's not violating any of the laws of logic. So if the premises are set up in such a way that everything follows naturally to the conclusion, you've got a valid argument, 
the truthfulness of that argument comes by evaluating the, the strength of the premises. Are the premises that form the backbone of the argument true? If they are, then you've got a persuasive argument. Okay? Does that make sense? Uh, and one of the ways you evaluate, now I realize that uh, what is persuasive to some people is not persuasive to others. One of the things you can do in sort of an objective fashion with a premise is to see how plausible its negation would be. So you take one of the, 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 the rungs of the ladder, so to speak, and see if the negation is more plausible than the statement itself. And that will become a little bit uh, more clear in just a moment. What you have in front of you is a logically valid argument. In other words, the conclusion does follow from the premises that precede it. That's a, so it's a logically valid argument. However, it's not necessarily a good or persuasive argument. We have to evaluate each premise to see if each premise is more plausible, as stated here, than the negation. Let's uh, take this as an example. Premise one, something exists. Something exists. That's where the argument begins. Is that more plausible than its negation? Nothing exists, or something does not exist. Now, we'll unpack each premise in a moment. But this is where this particular argument starts. Something exists. Premise two. There are only four possible explanations for the existence of something. A, it's an illusion. B, it is self-created. C, it is self-existent, or D, it is created by something else that is self-existent. Of all the possibilities that have ever been suggested as to where something comes from, whatever that something is, they can all be subsumed under one of these four categories. That something, whatever it is, it's either an illusion or it is self-created, it came into existence out of nothing. Or it is self-existent, it exists by the necessity of its own nature, by virtue of what it is. Or it's created by something else that is self-existent. You have to throw that last part in there because you just keep going back and back and back until you get to something that is self-existent. Okay, so yes. Yeah, we'll get to that. We'll get to that. Premise three, good question, and if I don't, if I don't uh, explain that further. Premise three, it is not logically possible for everything to be an illusion. It is not logically possible for everything, notice everything is in italics there, to be an illusion. Premise four, it is not logically possible for anything to be self-created. Self-created means that thing brings itself into existence. That thing, whatever it is, you're talking about a shoe, an earlobe, an animal, a star, a person. To be self-created means that thing brought itself into existence. And what we're saying here is it is not logically possible for anything to be self-created. Is that true? We'll, we'll talk about it momentarily. Number five, premise number five. If A and B of premise two are eliminated, which we've just done by way of assertion, we have to support it, but by way of assertion, we just got rid of premise two A and two B. 
If A and B of premise 2 are eliminated, then only C and D remain. Therefore, the only possible explanations for the existence of something involve a self-existent something. That is, that thing, whatever it is, it exists in and of itself. It has being within and of itself. It exists by the necessity of its own nature. Nothing brought it into existence. It simply is. Okay? That goes a little bit to that question. The difference is, is huge there between those two terms. So premise five, if A and B are, are eliminated, then only C and D remain, and both of those involve the concept of self-existence. Premise six, the self-existent something is either the universe itself or a transcendent being with causal power. A transcendent being with causal power. Premise number seven, the universe cannot be self-existent because of the insurmountable problems of something called infinite regress, individual mutability, and logical equivocation. We'll explain those when we get there. But well, you see we're doing very logically eliminating all the possibilities, and what are we left with? We're left with a therefore, a transcendent being with causal power exists. All right, this is natural theology. We're not appealing to Bible verses or anything in uh, Scripture. This is all natural theology. So, this is a logically valid argument. The only question is, and by logically valid, again, I mean that the conclusion follows logically from the premises. The question is, how good are the premises? Okay, one final argument before we turn a corner in our study of apologetics. Let's look at premise one. Something exists. Something exists. Now, we ended last week by talking about the French philosopher René Descartes. Is that a familiar name to you? René Descartes, French philosopher. And the methodology that he used to arrive at what we would call first truths, or what he called self-evident truths. Um, in other words, clear and distinct ideas that become the building blocks of all thought and all knowledge. Descartes was concerned with finding an indubitable starting point. He wanted to make sure that everything he said was logically provable and valid. Uh, and so he was searching for a place to get started. And, here, and we talked about this last week a little, a little bit. How he got started. He started, what did we say? What was his starting point? Anybody remember? Okay, we'll get to that. That's not where he started. That's where he wound up. Where did he start? By doubting everything. You remember that? He started by doubting everything. He became a skeptic about absolutely everything he could possibly think of. Um, he systematically doubted everything around him, everything in him, almost. He doubted, for example, the existence of God. He doubted the authority of the Bible. He doubted the trustworthiness of the church and what it taught. He doubted what he could see in front of him. He doubted the tree that was in front of him. He doubted the people he could see and hear. He doubted everything. He said, I'm not sure that reality, as I'm conceiving it and processing it, 
is the way things really are. You say, well, what happened when he ran into that tree? Did he doubt it? No, he doubted that he actually hurt his head when he did. It was an illusion. So he kept systematic process of doubt. Now, remember, philosophers play these, they do these thought experiments. They love to do thought experiments because that fleshes out some of the concepts that they're playing with in their mind. So even this is foreign to you. Just kind of go with it. This is what philosophers do. They get paid to teach your kids this stuff in university. All right? Descartes started by doubting everything. He said, I see you, I hear you, but how do I know for sure that you're not a figment of my imagination? How do I know that you're not an illusion? Um, or a character in one of my dreams. You might be familiar with the term solipsism, a philosophical thought experiment that says everything that's happening right now, it's my dream. And I'm going to wake up tomorrow and maybe be a butterfly. And everything you're hearing tonight, it's an illusion. Everything I'm saying tonight, it's an illusion. Okay? Solipsism. It's a thought experiment that philosophers like to play with. Descartes said, I have to find something that I cannot doubt. That sounds appealing to some of you. Your lives are so messed up. <laughs> I hope this is a dream, right? <laughs> um, Descartes said, I have to find something that I cannot doubt. And he finally found something. And it was so important to him, and it's often important to philosophers. You know, if you get that first shirt button wrong, every other button is wrong. So he said, I got to get the first one right. I have to have one real objectively verifiable, provable assertion to start from. Otherwise, everything else is built on a house of cards. It's a, it's a house of cards built on a shaky foundation. Well, here's what Descartes reasoned. He came to the conclusion that he did in this manner. He said, I am aware that I am doubting. I am aware that I am doubting. So now I need to doubt that I'm doubting. But in order to doubt that I'm doubting, I have to be conscious that I'm doubting. Because doubt is a kind of thinking. And if I doubt that, I, that I'm thinking, what am I doing? I'm thinking. You follow what he's saying? If I doubt that I'm thinking, I, I'm thinking. So to doubt that I'm thinking is to affirm that I'm thinking. It's inescapable, he said, that I am thinking. Because to deny that I'm thinking requires that I think. And so Descartes came, Descartes came to the, the conclusion, the one thing that I am sure of is that I am thinking. I may not be thinking well. I may not be thinking rationally. I may not be thinking logically. But I know I'm thinking, and I know it's me who think, who's thinking. And that's where, as Josh said a moment ago, that's where he came up with that very famous phrase. It comes into Latin, cogita ergo sum. I think, therefore, I am. He would have said it in French. Je pense donc, je suis. I think, therefore, I am. That is the one thing I am sure of. My starting point, said Descartes, is I am conscious of myself. Even if I doubt my own self, I am self-consciously doubting my own self. So one thing I know for sure is my own self-consciousness. I'm aware of myself. So, said Descartes, I'm conscious of something. I am sure something 
exists. And that was his starting point. And I would put it to you tonight that that's not a bad starting point. Can we agree? Something exists. Can we agree on that? Um, You know, if we can get that far, we are halfway home to logically proving the existence of God. And this is why this very point is something that is disputed over in philosophy. This point is crucial. Descartes said, I think, therefore I am. I have an assurance of something existing, and that's me. I think, therefore I am. Yeah. Anything, anything, doesn't matter. Anything. We just need to be sure of one thing. Something exists. Uh, R.C. Sproul said, if we can get people to acknowledge that something exists, we have a basis for a rational foundation for the existence of God. And he's right. We'll try to show that tonight. Something exists. Now, do you agree with that? Do you agree with that? Do you agree that you exist? (laughs) If you're not sure, consider the line of reasoning of Descartes. Um, Turn the guns of doubt on your own doubts. And see if you can continue to doubt your own existence without affirming it in, in the process. Are you with me? As I said, you get that far, you're almost home. (laughs) It's absolutely crucial. Something exists. How plausible is that? Well, just consider its negation. Something doesn't exist. How plausible is that? You would have to defend it. You might start by not paying taxes anymore in your illusory dream that you're having. And then you can be arrested by the illusory government and throws you into a pretend jail that doesn't exist. Okay. Something exists. Premise two. There are only four possible explanations for the existence of something. Every explanation that's ever been offered as to where something came from, it will fall into one of these four categories. Number one, it's an illusion. Number two... It is self-created. That is, it brought itself into existence in and of and by itself. Or, see, it is self-existent. It exists necessarily. We talked about that last week when we considered Anselm's ontological argument. It exists by the necessity of its own nature. Or, four, it's created by something else that is self-existent. Those are your four possibilities. Everything else that's ever been offered can be subsumed under one of these four categories. Now, we'll move on uh, to the next premise because I think some of our exposition here goes to uh, what I just asserted. Premise three, it is not logically possible for everything to be an illusion. Some things, yes, but not everything. There are illusions. A mirage is an illusion. Uh, Some people would say hallucinations and other drug-induced thoughts 
are illusions. But here's the deal. If you want to assert that everything's an illusion, you, you still have to account for the illusion. We have to have a sufficient reason for the illusion. Something has to be having the illusion. Did you, did you catch that? Something, something has to be having the illusion. We're back to something again. Are you with me? <laughs> this is fun, isn't it? I hope you're well caffeinated tonight. <laughs> and quite honestly, if we say everything's an illusion, then the statement I just made is an illusion. Everything's meaningless. Some would argue that it is. And that, that plunges you into a discussion of abstract objects, like the number three. What is it? Is it a something? I'm actually taking the counter-argument and just taking it at face value and saying that an illusion isn't real. Based upon an analogy that, remember what we said last week, just because you can conceive of something doesn't make that thing real. I can conceive of Santa Claus, that doesn't make Santa Claus real. Remember how Anselm was, uh, you can say it's real in my mind, but in actuality? <laughs> What's the distance between thought and actuality? That's what Anselm was playing with in the ontological argument. I refer you to last week. <laughs> but, but it's a good question. I'm just taking their argument that says, well, there's nothing really here, the whole solipsism game, that everything's an illusion. Okay, given that premise, well, then you've, you've said something meaningless, for starters, but then you still have to account for the illusion. What's having it? Someone or something's having the illusion. So I, I'm comfortable saying an illusion is something. But there, by them, I mean the atheist would say, this is one way to account for reality as we know it. Yes, you want to jump in here? Then, then doesn't that presuppose that there is a Absolutely. As we often say, perception is reality to the beholder, and you're not going to talk him out of it. But you have to have an objective reference point to even declare something to be an illusion. I think that's the way to say it. Yeah, absolutely. So, anyway, someone or something has to be having the mirage or the illusion or whatever. So, something exists. Uh, the proposition that an illusion accounts for everything is not a good accounting. Premise four, and this is maybe the most controversial part of the argument. It is not logically possible for anything to be self-created. It is not logically possible for anything to be self-created. Now, this idea of self-creation comes under many, many different names. You could go back to the Enlightenment period and the French encyclopedists, for example. Um, folks like Denis Diderot and others, uh, they, who call themselves, by the way, the personal enemies of God. I think that's interesting. But they said that the God hypothesis is no longer necessary because we now know that things can come into existence without the aid of a causal agent. And they uh, promoted what they called spontaneous generation. Have you ever heard that term before? Spontaneous generation. Most of us have only ever heard of spontaneous generation in seventh grade biology class. 
Uh, remember how meat left out overnight produces maggots, and it, they weren't there yesterday, they're here now, they just popped into existence out of nothing. And that is readily dismissed now because of uh, microscopic realities that we can see with, with the aid of high-powered lenses and so forth. We now know where those things come from. They don't pop into existence out of nothing. There is a cause. The larvae that was already in the meat, where'd they come from? And you keep pushing the problem back. But they, they didn't spontaneously pop into existence out of nothing. I think we said a few weeks ago that this idea of self-creation, that things can pop into being out of nothing, is it's not how the world works. I mean, it's, it's fundamentally ridiculous. If you drive home and there's a, a strange car in your driveway, you're going to say, where'd that come from? You're not going to say, um, oh, it must have just popped into existence here. Um, right now, and we've used this example before, right now you're not sitting here worried that there is a horse in your living room defiling your carpet that just popped into existence there to do its... <laughs> are you? Well, maybe you are. That'd be an illusion. <laughs> uh, anyway, <laughs> why? Because things don't just pop into existence out of nothing. This idea of self-creation is actually worse than magic. If I can pull a rabbit out of a hat, at least I've got a rabbit and I've got a hat. Even on Bewitched, remember Elizabeth Montgomery? She twitches her nose and her mother-in-law and Dora just appears, pops into existence. But, you know, she's always coming from somewhere. I was with your Uncle Arthur in the Himalayas, and we were doing this, and dog sledding, and, you know, she's just teletransporting from one place to another. She's not materializing. This idea of self-creation... Um, Actually, self-creation is what philosophers would call a self-referential absurdity. It's a self-contradiction. Um, and and you, don't need, you don't need microscopes to know this. You just need a little bit of logic. An axiom of science that has been able to weather all manner uh, of examination and, and criticism is, is this. Ex nihilo nihil fit. Out of nothing, nothing comes. Out of nothing, nothing comes. Here's the deal, and we touched upon this last week with Anselm's ontological argument and all the subsequent iterations of that argument followed in the Middle Ages and up to the present moment. Nothing cannot produce something. Nothing cannot produce something. You can't get something from nothing. Now, it's easy to pick on spontaneous generation. Um, because that's microscopically verifiable that that's, that's an absurdity, at least that example in biology. Living organisms do not come into existence out of nothing. But you might have heard it phrased this way, 13.7 billion years ago, the universe exploded into being. Right? 13.7 billion years ago, or as Carl Sagan used to say, billions and billions. Billions of years ago, emphasis on the B, the universe exploded into being. Hey, wait a minute. What was it before it exploded into being? Was it non-being? Really? It couldn't have been. See, it's one thing to say it exploded into being from a hyperdense point of cosmic singularity. But it's a totally different thing to say that the world exploded into being. 
you follow me? Totally different. If it was non-being before, it didn't explode into being. Um, whether you call it spontaneous generation or Big Bang or, or chance, it's all forms of self-creation. Let's talk about chance for a moment. The world just came into being by chance. Is that even logical? I mean, what is chance? It's a quarter. I'm going to flip it. What are the chances it's going to come up heads or tails? It's 100%. You're very smart. Most people say 50%. 100, yeah, 100% is going to come up heads or tails. But we say it's 50-50 chance it'll be tails. Um, now, my question is, when I flip this, you probably have no idea how much energy I'm going to exert on the quarter, what the density is of the atmosphere through which it tumbles and comes back to Earth. You have no idea if I'm going to catch it here, catch it here, let it fall to the ground and pick it up, and whether I'm going to flip it over before I expose whether it's heads or tails. You have no idea. So we take all of that mixed together, and we say there are too many variables to figure all that out. So we say what? There's a chance, a 50-50 chance, one out of two chances it's going to be heads or tails. Now, my question to you is this. When I flipped the quarter, how much effect did chance have on what it is now? How much effect did chance have on what that is now? Nothing. Because chance is nothing. Chance has no causal power. Chance is a mathematical description of possibilities. But chance is not something that has causal power. It's not a thing. It is nothing. And that which is nothing has no causal power. Are you with me? So to say that the universe came into being out of, because of chance, that is a self-referential absurdity. You're simply using the term self-creation in a different way, but that's what you're saying, self-creation, because chance is nothing. I say again, self-creation is a self-referential absurdity. Things cannot make themselves, but why? Why would I say that? Well, follow me here. For something to make itself, that thing would have to predate itself. For something to make itself, it would have to predate itself. It would have to be before it was. In other words, it would have to be and not be at the same time and in the same relationship. Which violates the law of non-contradiction, which Pastor Jason talked to us about uh, several weeks ago. Did you follow that? For something to create itself, it would have to predate itself. It would have to be and not be at the same time. It would have to be before it was. That's why I say self-creation is a self-referential absurdity. Self-creation is rationally falsified and has never been observed. To argue for self-creation, you have to deny reason. So the second possibility here is eliminated. 
That takes us to premise 5. If A and B of premise 2 are eliminated, then only C and D remain. Therefore, the only possible explanations for the existence of something involve a self-existent something. Right? Letter C, something. It's either eternal or self-existent. It's, it's eternal and self-existent, I should say. Or D, it's created by something else that is eternal and self-existent. Those two possibilities there that remain are both, they both involve what? Self-existence. Follow? Now, if we're down to these two, if we're down to these two legitimately, logically, we have already asserted and proven the fundamental affirmation of theism. Something must exist necessarily. Something must be self-existent in this universe. Now, at that point, somebody, of course, says, wait a minute. It's just as difficult to imagine something being self-existent as it is to imagine something that is self-created. And, and I grant you that. It's, it's very difficult to think of anything that's self-existent because you certainly aren't self-existent and I'm certainly not self-existent. We don't know of anything that is self-existent. We don't have anything to point to in our time and space to say there's one. Bertrand Russell, uh, after reading, he was a teenager. Bertrand, Ru Bertrand Russell is a very famous atheist, and we've talked about him several times in this series. He's a mathematician and a philosopher. He wrote a book called Why I'm Not a Christian. I had to read it in seminary. I was bracing myself for a really good argument. It wasn't a good argument at all. It was a screed. I was really disappointed. I mean, I, you know, it was like a, a fighter training for a fight, and, and it's a weakling who shows up in the under, other corner when you find <laughs> I mean, it really is a screed. But he read a, when he was a teenager, Russell had read... Brilliant mathematician and, and a decent philosopher, I'll grant that. But he read us an essay when he was young, a uh, teenager, I think it was by John Stuart Mill, good philosopher himself. And he, he, he basically said this, if everything has a cause, then that argument returns itself back onto God himself. If everything has a cause, then God himself has to have a cause. And, of course, a theist would say, no, even God could not be self-created. Even God can't pop into existence. And, and, and classical theism has never said that God created himself or just popped into existence. Classical theism has never said that. Classical theism has always agreed with what the Scripture says, that God is eternally self-existent. All the irrationality that would attend to the physical self-creation would also attend to the spiritual self-creation. Classical theism has never asserted that God created himself or that he just popped into existence out of nothing. But here's the deal. Russell misidentified the law of causality. And it's important to keep this in mind. The law of causality does not say that everything must have an antecedent cause. Let me say that again. The law of causality does not say that everything has to have a prior or antecedent cause. To say that everything has to have an antecedent cause would lead us back to the problem of self-creation at some point, which is the logical absurdity of self-creation on steroids. You've then got an infinite regress of self-creation. Um, but more than that, something has to exist or there would now be nothing. 
Again, we touched upon this. You see how much Anselm, back in the year 1077, actually foresaw some of this development. In fact, in fact, he caused it. He had his finger on this very idea of the necessity somewhere, at some time, of real being, necessary being, self-existent being. And even though he didn't articulate it in anticipation of some of the arguments that were thrown at him, he really had his finger on something that philosophers would go on to develop through the Middle Ages about the logical necessity of real being. What do I mean by that? Well, let me state correctly first the law of causality. The law of causality is a formal principle in logic. Secular and sacred philosophers adhere to it. It's an abstract formula. It's, it's really just an extension of the law of non-contradiction. The law of causality says this. Every effect must have an antecedent cause. Every effect must have an antecedent cause. You see the difference? Not everything, but every effect. And see, that statement is analytically true. In other words, it's true by definition. It's, it's almost a tautology. It's redundant. You have no information there, new information, when you say every effect has to have an antecedent cause because um, it's, these, these words define each other. The word effect defines the word cause. The word cause defines the word effect. So the statement is analytically true, and everybody accepts it. Again, atheistic and theistic philosophers accept that. But again, to say that everything has an antecedent cause just takes the problem of self-creation back further. And you haven't solved the problem. And the assertion being made here is that something has to exist or there would not be anything now. Now, follow me here. <laughs> Need to stand up, do jumping jacks, do it. But this is the heart of the argument right here. If ever there was a time when there was absolutely nothing and now there is something then that something would have had to come into existence out of nothing and by its own power. Did you follow that? Let me say it again. If ever there was a time when there was absolutely nothing, and now there is something, then that something would have had to come into being out of nothing by its own power, which we just established is a logical absurdity cannot happen. It's a self-referential absurdity. Because nothingness has no properties at all and therefore no potentialities. Nothing is devoid of all capabilities and causal power. That's why something cannot come into being out of nothing. Anything can only come from something. Therefore, if something is here now, then logic demands that something somewhere has always had this power of being in and of itself or nothing now could possibly be. Did you follow that? I know that's abstract, but one follows necessarily from the other. What are we saying here? If there's anything now, there had to be something always. If there's something now, there never could be a time when there was nothing. Because the something that's here now could not come from that nothing. Follow me? Okay. So if anything exists, something somewhere must exist necessarily, or what we would say is self-existent. There's got to be a power supply for reality, and that power supply cannot come from nothing. If ever there was a time when there was only nothing, 
then there would only be nothing now. But we all agreed, didn't we, that there is something. That was premise one, 30 minutes ago. Something exists. Well, then something has always existed. By the necessity of the case being made here. Something exists now, then something exists necessarily. That is, it cannot not be. It exists by sheer power of being in and of itself. So then the argument becomes, what is it? What is that being? <laughs> God or the universe? What is it? Premise six. The self-existent being, the self-existent something is either the universe itself or a transcendent being with causal power. The universe itself, that's the something that we agree is here, or a transcendent being that has causal power. Again, the concept of self-creation is contradictory and irrational, but the concept of self-existence violates no formal rule of logic. Now, we look at the universe around us because we're going to have to eliminate one of these possibilities. Which is more plausible here? We can look at this universe in its little bits at the atomic level or at the astronomical level. We can look at all its constituent parts. We can look at it as a whole. It doesn't matter how you look at it. We can look at it as particle or wave. Isn't it fascinating, by the way? We can still do no better in physics. When you ask the question, what is light? What is light? What is it? What is it? Do you know? The absence of darkness? <laughs> Actually, I would say the darkness is the absence of light. And the corollary is not necessarily the case. Light. Ask a physicist what light is. They'll say, we're not sure. But we know this. Light demonstrates the properties of particles and waves. And they have generated... <laughs> physicists have generated what they call the wave-particle duality of light. It's unlike anything else. It's a, is it a particle? Well... When you do experiments with light, it, it demonstrates properties of particle. It bounces and refracts, and, but it also has properties of energy. It can go through things. I mean, it's, it's, this, this thing called light is wild. Have you ever heard of the wave-particle duality of light? It's fascinating. Now, let me throw this in for free. Jesus said, I'm the light of the world. Is he a particle or a wave? Is he human or divine? <laughs> gotcha. He's both. All right, that's... That's for free. Start the tape again, all right? Because that was, that was just, that was inserted. That, that, that is a violation of logic. You can get the Jesus, but not the way I just did. Anyway, I just think it's interesting, don't you? I'm the light of the world. What is light? It's a particle in a wave. I so love studying light. You know, light, there's more light than in, in reality than is visible to us. Remember the Roy G. Biv? Red, orange, yellow, blue, indigo, violet. You know what? There, there's light outside the visible spectrum, the ultraviolet side and, and the infrared side. I just throw that in for free to tease you. But anyway, back to this. Premise number seven. The universe cannot be the self-existent something because of the insurmountable problems of three things here. And I'll just try to do this quickly because we've been down this road before. Infinite regress... 
individuated mutability, and logical equivocation. Those are big words. Let me just really quickly throw in what this means. If you want to assert that the universe has always existed, as the Greek philosophers did, that matter itself is eternal, there's a problem right away. If the time-space continuum, as we understand it, has always existed, in other words, it has existed in infinity past, then you never could have gotten to the present moment because you have an infinite regress of causes, which means you could never have gotten to the present moment. And if by some chance you could have gotten to the present moment, the universe would have long since petered out by heat death. <laughs> by definition, if you want to say that matter is eternal in the negative direction on the timeline, it's always existed, then how could you ever have gotten to the present moment to even be talking about the universe itself? That's one problem. Number two individuated mutability. When you start looking at the little pieces of the universe, they change. My shoe changes. It's not the shoe I bought a couple months ago. Look at the bottom. It's different from what it was. It's, it's you know, it's, it's soon to be a holy shoe. <laughs> I'm losing my soul. Uh, there, there's scrapes all over it. It's changeable. What we would philosophically call is mutable. No, no, I don't believe you can lose. Not, don't. I get myself in trouble. <laughs> doing this. Um, now, somebody will argue, well, that's just the uh, individuated uh, components of the universe. Um, we know there's a relationship between matter and energy, E equal mc squared, right? As Einstein told us, nothing ever goes away. If uh, matter ceases to exist, it becomes a corresponding form of energy. So you get this trade-off. Nothing is ever lost. It's sort of a closed system. Okay, understood, but what are you saying here? That, that energy and matter takes, it's a reality within the time-space continuum. We're still left with the question, where did the time-space continuum come from? Are you saying that it created itself? Impossibility, logical fallacy, cannot happen. And then what, what I've noticed recently in the literature, this is a third one, this logical equivocation. I've noticed that as, as theistic people often like to say, that there is a transcendent cause to the universe. In other words, there is a being who exists necessarily outside of time and space that brought time and space into existence. And what we now hear from someone on the other side is something like this. And I'm trying to collapse their arguments and make it as simple as I can. That maybe there's something in the universe that is transcendent. That is a different sort of being that sort of replicated itself and extended itself. Okay, what's happening there, I grant you, maybe that's the case. Maybe that's the case, that there's a transcendent being not outside, but inside. But remember, according to theism, transcendent doesn't necessarily mean geographically outside. It means ontologically different. When I say that God is transcendent. I don't mean that he's up, up, far away, you know, uh, what is it, straight on to the moon, two stars to the right and straight on to morning or whatever, Peter Pan. Set, thank you very much. You're up on your, I, I try to avoid anything involving green tights. So, <laughs> transcendent for the Christian does not mean geographically far away. 
it means ontologically different in essence, in being, okay? So what's happened here is some, a logical fallacy called equivocation, which basically means this. The definition of a word changed in the process of an argument. That's the meaning of equivocation. And that's essential. I don't care if it's in or out. What I care about is that this being is ontologically different. Of necessity, it must be. Okay, so for those three reasons, I would have to take off the table this notion that the universe itself is the self-existent something. What are we left with? We're left with a transcendent being that has causal power. A transcendent being that has causal power. Now, Richard Dawkins, the famous atheist, has said, well, maybe it's, maybe it's aliens. I would like to know one thing, Mr. Dawkins. Why is it that a believer is not allowed to say something so stupid, but you are? Have you observed aliens? Yes, Tim, I've been to your nursery. <laughs> no, no, no. No, let's be serious. Why does he... Do you remember uh, 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 Daniel Dennett? He said, he's a famous atheist who said, that the universe as we know it is the ultimate cosmological bootstrapping trick. It's a quote. Say that again. The universe is the ultimate cosmological bootstrapping trick. And, and he's a scientist. He's a philosopher. He gets to use the word trick. But if I say the word miracle, I'm the idiot. I'm the unintelligent boob who's got no brain. I say, wait a minute. What are you trying to pull here? I'm over it. But <laughs> you see, wait. <laughs> As I have issues. Look, when you begin to explore this and see what they're really saying, when they get on the horns of a dilemma, they start saying ridiculous things. Don't be fooled. Just because they use big words and have an, have an alphabet soup of letters beyond their name. When you hear this at college, just yawn. Yeah, I know you do. <laughs> All right. I think we are plausibly at our conclusion that the cause is a transcendent being with causal power. Any logical fallacies in this reasoning, any invalid premises, anything implausible, not that I can see. But of course, we're all biased to some extent. Okay, questions, comments? Interaction on this before we move on. Is it, yeah. Um, bear with me. I, I kind of came up with this. And if you, could you have like a, almost like a causal circle where somehow the final effect becomes the cause for the first thing and that would be your eternal necessarily Yes, uh, the self-replicating generation, the self-replicating generational causal power, as I think is, is how they term it. Um, is it theoretically possible? Sure, um, theoretically possible. That thing has to still have an origin in which it comes into being at some point. Well, they would probably say that loop itself is, exists out of its own necessity. 
one possibility see if you could run into, since it's really just the same cause and effect looping over again, if you could run into the problem of them all piling up in infinity. Right, infinity past. Yeah. yeah. Um, yeah, that doesn't answer the question of how you would overcome the infinite regress to the present moment. That's one problem. But if, if you want to go in this direction, you're still left with where, where the circle itself comes. You still have to have a being that exists necessarily. Now, we haven't ascribed any uh, deity type of powers to this being in this argument. That's another matter. And I fully grant you that... Um, we haven't made that case. That's another half of apologetics. But you have, you have something that's transcendent and causal. If it's yourself replicating whatever, call it a maggot, or, you know, or, or something more majestic than that, um, it still has to have, it still has to be self-existent because it cannot come into being out of nothing. Agreed? Yeah, okay. Yes. 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 The properties that we would ascribe to this being at this point, based upon the logic we've done, is transcendent from the something we're talking about, and it has causal power. I would, I would add to that of necessity, it is a necessary being. It necessarily exists, this being, whatever it is. Uh, there's actually room for Dawkins' aliens. But what is alien? Alien has intelligence, doesn't it? Alien has causal power. Has he ever seen one? No. So when he says to me, Tim, you've never seen God, I can say to him, you've never seen your alien either. So we're back to that. We're back to a being that exists necessarily and has causal power. Beyond that, this line of argumentation can't take us much further than that. Although I would look then at the universe itself and say, wow, it's pretty creative. It's pretty interesting. Pretty fun. Pretty weird. You ever see a giraffe? <laughs> or a hippo? I mean, don't you? <laughs> In the zoo, okay? <laughs> um, I know what you're thinking. I, just, I was in college myself once. Just be nice. Um, so you can begin to infer some other properties that aren't necessarily logically proved, but are inferential just by looking at the universe itself. It's pretty fantastic. It's pretty amazing. All that to say this. I, I see the wheels turn. Yeah, Donna? Uh, premise two. Um, some philosophers would, uh, you, some would quibble with that, but I think it's demonstrably, uh, you can demonstrate that any, anything that's been offered can be subsumed under one of these categories. So that, that's, uh, now, letter... Uh, pretty much, pretty much. They might have a different name, but it, it usually will find itself in the self-creation category of necessity. It, like, for example, chance. If you're going to defer to chance, uh, you have to put that in the self-creation category because chance is nothing. So that's why chance finds itself in that category. It's a good question. As for the first one, it is an illusion. Some philosophers, more to the atheistic side, still stubbornly refuse to accept that one because the implications of that premise not being true is pretty devastating to their cause. Well, they would want to keep letter A <laughs> as a possibility. Um, yeah. So that's a good question. So I 
Yeah. Yeah, the, and, and that's often what's referred to. We saw that in the teleological argument, if you remember. Well, it is the probability that all 35 constants in the universe are fine-tuned to what they need to be to sustain life in this universe. That, I mean, it's astronomical. And uh, that reminded me of something I wanted to add here tonight, too. Uh, thank you. Um, because it is so astronomically improbable that all 35 constants of the universe are set to what they are to sustain life. A new hypothesis was introduced. Anybody remember what it was? Anybody remember the multiverse theory or the world ensemble theory? It's the hypothesis that says, well, our universe is one of a gazillion. And there's a gazillion gazillion out there. We just haven't discovered them yet. We will someday. We might. Maybe the hypothesis is wrong. But we're introducing this, pro this hypothesis because we don't like the implications of the teleological argument. And because it is so astronomically improbable that all 35 dials are set to the right spot to sustain life in this universe, we've got to somehow lower that number. And the way we lower it is by increasing the probability of other, other things happening. Now, and so that's, uh, that's one way they will get around it. There's, there's no, um, actually, that itself actually pushes the problem back only one, one notch further. Because where, obviously, the way they would say it is this, there is a universe generator somewhere in, in the reality that we know and beyond what we currently know. There's a universe generated, generator. It's sort of like, you know what a bread-making machine is, right? A bread-making machine makes bread. But what they're hypothesizing here is there is a bread-making making machine. Did you follow that? <laughs> a bread-making making machine. A, bread ma a machine that makes bread-making machines. So somewhere in this cosmos of ours, there is a universe generator that's just spitting out universes left and right. And there's a gazillion gazillion around it. So of course there's a probability that one in the gazillion gazillion will have all 35 dials set to just what they need to be to sustain life in this universe. Is, there, is that a plausible hypothesis? Pretty far-fetched. There's no evidentiary value to it. There's nothing that's been observed. It's simply a hypothesis to minimize this astronomical improbability that all 35 dials are set to the right level. And that's called science. I'm rather disappointed. <laughs> but that's what happens. I, I did have, a, after we did the teleological argument, I, uh, actually a young girl, I forget her name. Uh, she's been coming because she's interested in this and she's taking classes um, and uh, you're kind of arguing with her prof along the way. And, and she said, well, you know, you, you talk in terms of probabilities and I get that, but, you know, the more you play the lottery, you know what they say, you, you got to play to win, and the more you play, the more chances you're going to... And, and um, it's a fantastic question, and I didn't put them in my notes, but there is something called, I said there, what's happening there is you're increasing your probabilistic resources. That's the technical term in, in uh, statistics. You're increasing your probabilistic resources. Uh, simple analogy. If, if you've got a bag of 100 balls, one of them is white and the rest are red, and you reach in to try to get, you've got a 1 in 100 chance that you're going to get it, right? If you reach in twice, it's still one in a hundred, but you've increased your probability, the probability resources have increased. Okay, and so what she was saying is, like in the multiverse or the world ensemble hypothesis, you're increasing the possibilities of things happening. 
Now, here's the problem, at least as far as this universe is concerned. When you calculate, we did, you remember when we talked about proteins and the information on the DNA strand that directs the protein and what it does in the cell and how it's the astronomical, it's just absolutely impossible for these things to fall in line by chance and replicate themselves. And I gave you that astronomical number. Well, philosophers and cosmologists have, have calculated the, the maximum number of probabilistic resources in this universe. Meaning, here's what they did. They took the number of seconds since the Big Bang, which in their cosmology is 13.7 billion years ago. And the number is, uh, don't quote me on this because I don't have it in front of me, but it's something like 10 to the 100 and whatever. And then they multiplied that by the number of possible reactions between particles in every atom in every second, and that's 10 to the something. And then the number of particles in the universe that can possibly interact, that's 10 to the 80th power, you take all that and multiply it. That's the probabilistic resources in the universe. Okay, that, that number is the highest. You, you can't get any higher than that number of things happening in this universe. And it just so happens that the calculation we made for information coming together on the DNA strand by chance is almost double of the probabilistic resources in this universe. In other words, chance doesn't have a chance. Chance doesn't have a prayer, even. <laughs> and now, if, don't get lost in the numbers there. What we're saying is there's not enough opportunity to happen in this universe what they're suggesting happen. Uh, are you with me? It's kind of... Anybody lost out there in the cosmos? <laughs> All right. Let's just call a timeout. Let's just call a timeout. We're done with science. We're done with math. We're done with statistics. We're done with philosophy for the time being. What have we done? Take a look at your outline on page two. And maybe we'll just follow along with this next week because I want to I spend some time interacting with you on this stuff because it's important. We have done, we've given the four primary arguments for the existence of God based on natural theology. What is natural theology as opposed to revealed theology? Anybody? What's the difference? Natural theology as opposed to revealed theology. What's the difference between the two? Did we not learn anything for the last couple months? What's the difference, Jason? Okay. To put it very simply, natural theology doesn't use the Bible. Why not? Not everybody believes the Bible. John 3.16 says, oh, stop, Tim, I don't believe the Bible. Now what? You're going to get saved whether you like it or not. And I commit spiritual homicide. <laughs> I, I engage what some would call evangelism. I call it a spiritual mugging. Is the conversation over? I don't believe the Bible. Now, usually there's something else going on there. Existential pain from what's happened in the Bible. It could be a, a thousand things. But is the conversation over? Well, there is a justification within the Bible itself for natural theology. 
Psalm 19, the heavens declare the glory of God. The, the firmament displays his handiwork. Night after night, they pour forth speech. In other words, the world's talking, and what it's talking about is the God who made it. So by paying attention to nature, there's something we can hear from God. But more than that, that's not just preacher's rhetoric. Because in Romans chapter 1, Paul says that that revelation is enough to hold you and me accountable before God if we reject it. Uh, you, Romans chapter 1. What is created bears witness to the invisible qualities of God, his mighty power, his invisible qualities, and so that men are without excuse, he says. Now that tells me there's something legitimate in natural theology. Josh, you had your hand up. Okay, the seeing. Yeah. Yeah. Um, good. Well, why don't we use the example of uh, Dawkins? Dawkins himself is in a wheelchair. He, now he can see, but he doesn't have much capability beyond that. Uh, I'm sorry. What did I say? Dawkins. Yeah, Richard Dawkins and, and Hawking. Stephen Hawking. Sorry. Yeah, it's easy to confuse those two. <laughs> anyway, Hawking. He's, he speaks through the speech, speech synthesizer. You know, he's got ALS. He's had it for 20-some you know, years now. It's a very courageous story of, of this man who's just overcome a lot of obstacles to be a good scientist. He actually solved the field equations for Einstein's theory of general re relativity. I, I mean, the guy's brilliant, even though he's incapacitated. Now, I think the C there is not a seeing necessarily a sense perception, but an actual uh, comprehension. Uh, you know that if you lose one sense, others develop more highly. And God is not unjust to the extent that we are impaired. <laughs> there is mercy with the Lord. But I think the point that he's making in Romans 1 there is we're without excuse. It's by looking around at creation. It implies the creator behind it. And therefore, we are without excuse, whether in the deepest part of the bush in Africa or, you know, in, in scientific Americana. Nobody is without excuse here. That tells me natural theology has a place. And so you don't believe the Bible? Okay, the conversation's not over. Where did this all come from? And you can have a dialogue. But here's, here's my point. Here's why I call your attention to this outline. We've spent the last couple months doing nothing but natural theology. We have not used this. We've alluded to it occasionally when, it's, when an argument aligns with what's said in here. For example, the ontological argument points you to Exodus 3, John 8, 58, when Jesus says, Before Abraham was, I am. Acts 17, in him we live and move and have our being. We've alluded to it, but we haven't used it to prove anything or argue for anything. What, what, all that to say this. When we labor through the cosmological argument, the teleological argument, the anthropological or the moral argument, and the ontological argument, I think we at least get this far, 50-50. What do I mean by that? All that we've done the last couple months appealing to science, appealing to math and probability, appealing to philosophy, we have at least gotten the scale to 50-50. At least. Now, again, I'm biased. I think our, the scale tilts in our direction. But we have at least gotten 50-50, the plausibility of the existence of God, and we haven't even yet cracked the Bible. And I think God set it up that way. You ever notice how we get so far with these, these arguments 
And we're just like one step short of a slam dunk. Have you ever noticed that? I put the question to you, why do you think that is? Assuming there is a God, assuming this is his word, assuming that natural theology is a legitimate theological enterprise, why do you think that God set it up that these arguments can go really, really, really far and be just short of a slam dunk? What do you think? What do you think? I'm not sure I have an answer. I'm just curious. Okay. Yeah. That's a good, absolutely. Remember, we have said uh, multiple times in the series, knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. If all you have is an argument, you don't have much. If all you have is an argument for the existence of God, you don't have much. And I would also say that if you can argue somebody into believing in God, he can be argued out of believing in God. You have your hand up, Josh? Okay, there's a, it's almost as if God has hedged off the slam dunk um, for a possible reason involving man's pride and his wisdom, our foolishness. Okay, any other thoughts? Donna? So, if I understand what you're saying, this just short of slam dunk is a revelation in some way of his character. Okay? I would agree with that. What is that revelation? What does that tell us about God? Let me put it to you this way. Does it appear either from these arguments in natural theology or revealed theology, that God compels belief. He doesn't. He doesn't compel belief. He gives all the evidence necessary for a rational conclusion that he exists, but he does not compel it. If that theory is correct, I'd be interested in Jason's thoughts on that too. If that's the case, why not? Why not? Is it really possible to have a relationship of love with someone who is compelled to have it? Remember the moral argument that Pastor Jason gave and how he wound up at, at love, of all things. Is it possible to have a real relationship of love if that relationship itself is compelled when, when the kids were little, occasionally they would get belligerent. Occasionally. And I would have to say, go give your mother a hug. And you know what, clomp, 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 bottom lip out. Was that in any way thrilling to Sonia? Because daddy made her do it. 
But you know what's really special? I'm trying not to cry when I say this. Just within the last week, uh, I've, gotten, I've gotten a note from my son who said, have I ever told you, Dad, how glad I am that you're my father? I'm feeling all happy and good and warm inside. Why? Nobody told him to do that. That wasn't a class assignment from the temple profs. His mother didn't tell him to do that. It just out of the clear blue. And it was so deeply meaningful because it just came from him. Nobody compelled him to do it. See the difference? Maybe something like that's going on here. But as far as I'm concerned, these natural theology arguments get you almost slam dunk. Almost. But just one step back, God is free from the accusation that he compels belief. Remember Thomas, after the resurrection of Jesus, Thomas, what's his nickname? The doubter. Why did he doubt? What was his... What was his evidentiary burden that would push him into faith by his own admission? What was it? Unless I see the nail prints in his hands and his feet, I will not believe. Or in his side, I will not believe. And what did Jesus do? Showed him the nail prints in his hands and his side. The spear mark in his side. What's that tell you? Jason, you want to jump in here? Boy, well said. Well said. And the reference to, to Matthew 28 
is fascinating. I don't know if you ever, in what we call the Great Commission, all authority has been given to me in heaven and the earth, therefore go make disciples. It is actually, it's, it's a fascinating thing to read. There's Jesus, but some still doubted. Jason's absolutely right. That is, I'm like, what? you got to be kidding me. Um, but it does say something about the nature of God. I think, uh, I think Donna's intuition is absolutely right. It says something about how he works in our lives. And um, any restraint he puts on himself, it is because of his own nature. And, and, and the, this thing called love, this crazy little thing called love. And it's necessity of being freely chosen and embraced. Here's all the evidence, it's irrefutable. Would that possibly not push people into making a very permanent decision right there and then that either they'd, be, they'd accept right then or they'd be lost forever? Kind of going along with Jeff Parkinson. Yeah, we talked about it. Oh, boy. Look at the time. <laughs> yeah, boy, interesting. State that again, just so I can uh, clearly understand. God came down and was like dirt and appeared and there was no doubt it was God. It basically forced people to right then and there to decide. Either they'd say, I'm with God or they'd be forever lost. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and interestingly enough, he doesn't do that. And any of the judgments of God that you read about in the Bible, Pastor Jason mentioned Pharaoh. Um, you know, I would, I would have taken that little pipsqueak out on the first plague. Now, I wouldn't take 10 to do it. But that's the amazing thing about God. He is slow to anger, abounding in love. And his desire is to woo and entice. Uh, It's not that he's a beggar. Uh, I don't mean to to paint him as impotent. But it would seem to me that the the nature of love would require something that that we we see and are persuaded by, captured by, and, and want to embrace that which he freely offers. As long as any judgment you read about, in Scripture, it's, it was a long time in coming. coming. I've often used the example of Methuselah, uh, one of the early symbols of the judgment of God. Methuselah's name meant, it shall come when he dies. That's a mouthful. But his name in Hebrew meant, it shall come when he dies. And um, everybody knew that as soon as Methuselah fell over dead, the judgment of God comes. And it's interesting, the day he fell over dead, the first raindrop came from the sky and the springs opened up and the flood came. In other words, God says, I put my grace upon a man's life. Watch this man. That's how long my grace is. And he's the man who lived the longest in history. That's the grace of God. And so there's not a compulsion. The door of the ark is open. And God says, come. Come in. I am going to close it at some point, but I want you to come in. Here I am. Will you embrace my gifts? Would you, would you embrace my son? Jesus gave the evidence needed. And what was Thomas's response when he saw the nail prints? What happened? He recognized him. He fell to his knees and said what? My Lord and my God. He was looking eyeball to eyeball to God. When he realized that, he fell to his knees. Not compelled. Here's the evidence. Make a choice, Thomas. Everything points to belief. Now believe. So I think we see something about the nature of God and how this is set up. Uh, We use the metaphor of a slam dunk. Let me give you one more metaphor and then we'll let you go. I I like the metaphor of uh, C.S. Lewis referred to apologetics as brush clearing. Brush clearing. And by that, he, he basically means this. 
you're never going to successfully argue somebody into the kingdom of God. But what you can do is get rid of all the objections and create a, a clean path to walk on. So that then we've gotten rid of this objection, this objection, this objection. You still have to make the choice and walk that path to faith. You're not compelled. But so, so apologetics has this value. It, it's a brush-clearing effect. And as it's cleared, we take away one excuse after another of why we shouldn't believe. Because there's every reason to believe. Let's pray. Father, for those who aren't persuaded, we pray that your spirit would work and draw. For those of us who are, Lord, increase our faith and help us to love you with all our heart and all our soul and all our minds. In Jesus' name, amen.